All right, it is Halloween 2023, and this is the Fight Business Podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Auger, and I am super excited to be back, ladies and gentlemen. I know I was on an extended hiatus there, but we are back in business, and what a time to come back, because a scenario I had brought up last month has come to fruition with Judge Bulware unsealing a treasure trove of documents in the UFC antitrust lawsuit case. There's so much to go through here. Some of these documents are just a couple of pages. Others are 200 plus. A lot of it is technical or legal jargon. So it's going to take me a while to sift through it. I am sure John Nash, Jason Cruz, um, I've seen Stephen Morocco of MMA fighting are already breaking into it. A lot of news and highlights is going to be out there over the next couple of weeks on several outlets. But what I plan to do here is each week, probably from now until the end of the year, I'm going to take a couple pieces of the documents or important info, break it down for you, and talk about what I found interesting in these documents from a business perspective, and especially from a consulting perspective. And with that in mind, today's overview of these documents are going to be Khabib Nurmagomedov's UFC contract, which has some important legal language and kind of sets the compensation model for a lot of different fighters, I'd imagine including you know, someone who's fighting ranked opponents. So we've got to break that down, as well as a presentation that is a company overview of the UFC from 2015. In this company overview, they talk about you know how the business essentially works, what's driving their revenue, what's their cost drivers, key strategies they plan to implement to move forward to meet certain projections up until 2020 is what this presentation has. And we're going to analyze that and see you know what went right, what didn't go right, and what can the UFC do to pivot from some of the changes and obstacles they've obviously had to face to continue to increase their revenue, to drive down their costs and continue to be as much of a success as they've been, especially now that they've merged with WWE into the TKO entity. So we're going to break all that down. We're also going to cover today a new sponsorship with UFC and Bud Light, why that exactly happened, the monetary value of that, the goodwill value of that, which is a huge factor in this. Uh, Endeavor possibly going private. Lots to unpack there. A lot of comments have been made. Endeavor stock is up quite a bit since the comments have come out. I'll break down why those comments were made, what the rationale and long-term strategy is here, or what it might be, a couple of different scenarios. And then last but not least, we need to talk about whether Nganu versus Fury, and that spectacle last weekend, which was, again, a big shock, a true Rocky story in a lot of ways, we're going to talk about who won in that. Did the UFC, Fury, Nganu, PFL win or lose? Those are the four people or entities we're going to talk about in terms of win-loss with that. That in mind, timestamps at the bottom as always, and let's go ahead and dive right in. All right. So first up, we have Khabib Nurmagomedov's UFC contract. Now, this is not his quote-unquote championship contract, right? This is a contract, I believe, that covers um, three or four bouts, including Daryl Horcher, uh, Michael Johnson, Edson Barbosa, that kind of run. And what this does is it gives us great insight to not just Habib's contract, right, but the kind of boilerplate language the UFC tends to use. The way these contracts are written, they're going to again, have most of this stay the same and then make certain adjustments depending on the fighter, their name, the compensation amount. Um, If they have special exceptions, right, they'll put them in there manually. But the, the core body of this is essentially 
going to remain the same. And shout out to Jason Cruz, as always, who is actually taking this document and put it unscribed. So you can go and look at this document, uh, check out his stuff at MMA Payout, as always. But feel free to go on his Twitter, or I guess X.com, whatever. I'm, I, you know, I'm just going to call it Twitter. I'm telling you right now. I'm going to keep calling it Twitter. Um, feel free to go on his Twitter and check out the link where he has this full document uploaded. And this is one of the exhibits that was unsealed. Um, there are some other contracts that are unsealed as well. Uh, Matt Hughes, uh, Brandon Vera, a couple others. I have not gotten through them yet. I felt Habib was the most important. I will read through those later. And if there is enough info worth uh, bringing up in another episode, I will otherwise assume a lot of the boilerplate stuff is the same and I might kind of do it as a cliff note or a quick hit in another episode. Uh, but with that in mind, looking through this contract itself, um, starts off with ancillary rights and use of image, um, promotional rights, right? Uh, interesting thing I thought was a, you know, if the UFC asks for it, the fighter has to provide them a, like, I think a three minute clip of one of their fights so they can use for promotional <laughs> purposes. Uh, I'm assuming that's for fights outside of the UFC. Otherwise they already have that. Um, but it talks about their image. Uh, yeah. Non-exclusive right to use a three minute excerpt clip of recording of any bout including any non-Zufa UFC bout, in which fighter was a participant. So again, this is for somebody who's new. If maybe it's, you know, they've been fighting in LFA or wherever on the regional scene, they want that clip in case they want to put it together in a highlight package and they don't have it in their library. It makes sense. Um, but these name and image rights are very similar to what you see in a lot of athlete named and image rights deals. Um, you know, they extend beyond death that is included in this uh, contract where, you know, a fighter ends up being severely injured or dying. UFC and Zufa keeps their rights and it's, you know, pretty much in perpetuity for the most part. Right. I mean, obviously past death, that means it keeps their rights. But I mean, the big thing there would be, you know, if Habib decides to go start his own video game company, he technically can't put himself in the video game because they UFC and Zufa has his image rights, right? In perpetuity. Um, you see that all the time in wrestling too. similar stuff, which talks more to the crossover, which we're going to get to a little bit in this episode, but definitely the next couple, I think, based on some of these documents. Um, but you get through all that and then you get to promotion. Um, some interesting tidbits about promotion here that I think we should cover. Um, so... Essentially, when you're looking at what they classify as promotion, right? Um, each bout, you know, should be a one-on-one -on -one contest, all of that fun stuff, uh, which we all knew. But Zufa shall promote and fighters shall participate in the minimum number of bouts set forth in Article 4 below, which basically is saying like, hey, this contract is for a minimum set number of bouts before it is either terminated or, you know... Um, we renegotiate essentially. Um, and for purposes hereof, Zufa shall be deemed to have complied with its obligation to promote any bout. If Zufa shall have made an offer to a fighter to promote a bout in accordance with the provision hereof and fighter shall have refused to participate. The bout is an undercard to a main event. The main event is canceled or postponed for any reason. The failure of such bout to take place shall not be deemed non-performance by Zufa. Zufa shall not be liable for fighters associated therewith. So this is important because this particular clause essentially says 
look, if something happens and uh main event is canceled for literally any reason, right? Let's say the UFC is just like, you know what? You made me mad. So I'm going to go ahead and cancel, pull you from a main event or, you know, COVID, right? Is one, um, a hail storm, any, any of that stuff. But, but let's take force majeure out of this. Let's say that they just opted to switch around main events, which we have seen, right? This is a real life scenario where you've got a main event and they may actually push that to a particular card, uh, a different card because another main event canceled or co-main event canceled and they want to bump up a particular card or somebody gets injured and then they're like, okay, we're going to, you know, say with a new opponent, but we're going to put it on a card three weeks from now to give your opponent time, whatever. Failure of about to take place is not deemed non-performance. So, you know, even if you were going to get paid on a fight that was supposed to happen, let's say on Halloween and it gets canceled for something that's not your fight at all or your fault, sorry, at all. It's not Zufa's fault. It's not the UFC's fault. Too bad. We don't have to pay you. It's pretty big. Uh, obviously, with what happened with the weight miss um, with Wonder Boy, right? And uh, that whole issue in his most recent fight. Yeah, they just don't have to pay him. Should they out of goodwill and all this stuff? Yeah, yeah, you could see that depending on the publicity and all that other stuff. But I mean, if, you're, if your opponent misses weight by like 10 pounds, right? And the fight's canceled, they don't have to pay you. Or let's say they miss weight by like enough that you could still technically accept it, but you're not going to. They don't have to pay you. There's nothing in the contract that states they have to pay you. In fact, it states explicitly that they are free to not pay you. So that's important. Um, the next clause here, fighters shall cooperate and assist in the advertising, publicity, and promotion of the bouts. Uh, any and all repro rebroadcast of the bouts in any media whatsoever, other UFC bouts, other UFC events and broadcasts, the sale of UFC merchandise, including making appearances of, at a reasonable number of press conferences, interviews, and other sponsorship and promotional activities, which may be telecast, blah, 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 at times and places reasonably designated by Zufa without additional compensation, therefore. For such promotional activities, Zufa will arrange and pay for fighters' reasonable travel, hotel, and meals. So this clause is also great because it states... Like, hey, you are going to cooperate and advertise for us, uh, do publicity for us at no extra money, right? We're going to pay for your meals and your travel um, and your hotel, but you're not getting any extra money and it's a reasonable number. So the fun thing about reasonable in contracts from what I'm led to believe, and this is something um, I will happily verify with someone like Jason Cruz or someone who, who's got a law degree. But from my understanding, having seen this in the independent contracting world as a consultant and talking with friends who are lawyers, reasonable is something that can really only be defined if it's challenged, right? What I think is reasonable and you think is reasonable may be two completely different things. One would assume that there are certain outer limits of this, right? Like if they said, for example, oh, hey, um, Khabib, you've got to show up at 100 press conferences between now and your fight in six months. Most people are going to think that's unreasonable. So it's it's pretty much out there, right? If it goes in front of a judge or an arbiter, like likely like, yeah, that's unreasonable. But let's say they say, no, look, you've got to be in fr front of six press conferences. 
Meanwhile, I think maybe four is reasonable and I don't really have time or effort if I'm Khabib to do the other two. Well, six month fight, one per month. I mean, again, this is press conferences might be the wrong thing. Let's say appearances, media appearances, right? The numbers can get murky. And the only way to really challenge it is to challenge the contract, which you'd have to pay legal fees for. Almost certainly the fight would be canceled, etc. I mean, think about what happened with Conor McGregor and Nate Diaz for UFC 200. That was supposed to be the fight. And Conor didn't show up for the press conference. He wanted to focus on training, especially after his loss to Diaz at 196. And that led to the bout being canceled. That essentially was... Zufa and UFC saying, okay, you're not fulfilling your promotional duties. We are therefore pulling the bout. It was rescheduled later for 202, right? But I mean, is, you know, I think the first press conference was a ways away. Um, forget exactly when it was, but it was, it was a fair amount before the UFC 200 in July. And so was it reasonable for McGregor to say like, nah, like, you know, I'll do other media appearances. I'll do it, but not that one a lot of people probably thought so especially since he's moving up in weight he just lost a lot of other people probably think not only way that term reasonable is truly going to get defined is if you challenge it so that again gives the ufc a fair amount of leverage right because they get to set the terms and if you don't agree the only way and only you know avenue you have as a fighter is to challenge it which will almost certainly lead to a cascade of events where you don't get paid, you're not on the card, etc. It's a nice clause that gives the UFC quite a bit of leverage. And keep in mind, um, as we go through this, this type of contract language, right? I mean, obviously, press conference, particular one for athletes is that. But some of these things that are going to seem one-sided are very common in consulting contracts right now. The amount of contracts I've had to redline as a consultant or I've seen other companies redline is ridiculous. Some of the language that companies just try and get past are in the first round or are, are, you'd think it'd be ludicrous if you're trying to do a partnership with somebody, but this is how it works because there are people who will design or there are entities that don't have the leverage to push back and are like, okay, we need to make money. We need to do this deal. We'll give you these concessions. It's all negotiation, but first pass is always the low ball offer, right? This is a clear example of that. And as we go through this, it's only going to get worse. But don't think this is a UFC-specific thing. This is very common in the consulting world, especially the con- the tech consulting world where I kind of live. Um, all right, so let's keep going. Um, all bouts should be on sites designated by Zufa, and it's sole and absolute discretion. If any bout is postponed for any reason, uh, except Zufa's non-performance, the bout agreement applicable to such bout should be shall determine the rights of the parties, and in addition thereto, the term shall be extended at Zufer's election by a number of days equal to the number of days between the date originally scheduled for the bout and the date on which the bout occurs. So this clause, right, which they've got the six-month injury clause we'll talk about, but this clause essentially says, too, hey, if a bout is postponed for any reason, uh, except unless we cancel it, uh, the term of your contract is extended. So COVID, right? Um, I forget the when the card was originally supposed to take place. The April card, I think, that was canceled. Technically, that extends all, all those fighters' contracts until that next bout comes back and happens. 
and they get Fight Island done and they do all that. Like technically, that's a force majeure. Based on this wording, one could easily argue like, well, okay, we rescheduled it for way down the line. So that's two, three months out of your contract. If you're trying to renegotiate or test free agency, that's not terms you want to hear, but that's, I mean, that's how it works. And it, again, it can be any reason. If a venue cancels, if something happens, it's it's an issue. Um, let's see some other clauses here. Uh, here's a big one. During the term, Zufa shall have the exclusive right to promote all of the fighters' bouts and fighters shall not participate in or render services as a professional fighter in any other capacity to any other mixed martial art, martial art, boxing, professional racing, or professional racing, professional wrestling, or any other fighting competition or exhibition except as otherwise expressly permitted by this agreement. So this is a big difference where we just saw Tyson Fury, right, take an exhibition against an O&O Francis Ngannou. He can kind of do that, right? As long as he's not putting the belts on the line and the sanctioning body is, you know, saying, hey, like, yeah, you can do this exhibition. You just can't defend your belt. Same with what Floyd Mayweather has been doing right on his retirement tour. That's not an option for the UFC um, unless the UFC permits it. Um also, notwithstanding the foregoing, in the event the fighter is not then a UFC champion, fighter is permitted subject to a prior written consent of Zufa, which consent may be granted or withheld at Zufa's sole discretion, to contract with other promoters or to engage in any other mixed martial arts bout or fighting competition by other promoters during the term provided. Such other bout is not televised by any domestic or international television network, station, cable system, satellite, or other provider. Um, other such bout is scheduled for and takes place on a date which is more than 60 days before or more than 30 days after any non-championship bout and more than 90 days before or more than 30 days after. And a copy of any agreement of any other bouts shall have been furnished to Zufa at least one week prior to its execution by the fighter. A fully executed copy of any such, any such agreement is provided to Zufa within five days of execution by fighter. Uh, so... And fighter, what else we got? Fighter expressly agrees in this agreement shall be automatically extended for an additional 120 days for each non-UFC promoted mixed martial arts conspiration or, or exhibition that they participate in. So this clause is very interesting because I don't know how it would happen nowadays, right? Especially given all of the ways that fights can be broadcast. Um, but, I mean, you just had, what, Mike Jackson fight Pat Militich, um, and I don't believe that was broadcast. It might have been, though. It actually might have been. No, it was. It was on the internet. So this is almost a moot point. But technically, if you're not champ, you can, if you get the written consent of UFC, at least as the contracts are written here in this language, you could technically say, like, hey, I want to go fight for you know, some other promotion, blah, blah, blah. And if you do, it extends your contract by 120 days. But technically, they could say, sure, okay, go ahead. And they don't need a cut or anything like that. But it can't be televised at all, can't be on the internet. So if you want to go to an underground fight club in Saudi Arabia and fight someone, as long as you're not UFC champ, totally can do it. Again, I feel like this clause is a moot point given the rise of the internet. Uh, but technically possible um then they talk about athletic commissions uh the term this is a big one right uh duration of the term for khabib's contract shall commence on the effective date it was 
you know, signed and be the earlier of 20 months after the first bout promoted by Zufa involving the fighter under this agreement or the date on which the fighter has participated in at least four bouts. So there's still all these extensions, right? Um, which we can talk about here, but we've we've talked about them at length before where you've got the, you know, six month extension for turning down a bout agreement. You've got the main, the bout shifting and that extending the date all this stuff, but essentially your standard out of the box contract, which I would imagine they would use for most everyone um, who's not a champ is once they promote the first bout, it's 20 months from that period. So once your first fight is done, it's 20 more fights or at least four bouts have been promoted. So if you do four fights quickly, right? Like let's say you're Kevin Holland doing, you know, four fights in a year type scenario that's going to end the agreement far quicker than if you are rising the ranks and you do one or two fights a year, you're going to be at least a couple of years under agreement. Um, again, contracts have definitely changed, especially with the sunset clauses and first being put in there and then kind of being roundabout removed. Um, but this is an idea of what those contracts look like. And what I, I would imagine a lot of contracts, the essential bones of the contract are. So still, still the core um, length of time for to provide fighter with minimum number of bouts enumerated in this article shall be extended for six months for, or any period of time that a fighter is unable or unwilling to compete, whichever is greater. This includes without limitation, uh, disabled, sick, injured for any reason, incarcerated, suspended, revoked by an athletic commission, all that fun stuff. So anytime somebody pops for USADA or anything else, it's a whole deal. They get pushed six months. Uh, it also shall be extended for any length of time. The fighter serves as coach on the ultimate fighter, uh, or six months, whichever is longer, which is pretty hilarious. So if you do the ultimate fighter, okay, guess what? Your contract's extended. Um, then they have acceleration, which we will talk about, but, um, yeah, I mean, that's pretty much the term length, uh, and Zufa shall not be deemed in default of this agreement, extend the performance of its obligation or prevented or prevented by reason by any act of God. So one could assume, that COVID might fall under this, uh, yeah, force majeure or any government determination or action regulation order. If there is an occurrence of a force majeure event, uh, Zufa may elect to suspend this agreement for a period equal to the duration of the occurrence and no compensation shall be paid or become due to a fighter during such a suspension period. So that hypothetically means I would not be surprised if the UFC did this and probably it's part of the reason they wanted to come back so quickly is during that COVID blackout, they just basically put all contracts on pause. So length of time was on pause. You don't get paid any of that fun stuff. Just sorry, you're out of luck. Not a fun time. Not a fun time. Um, for each bout, standard fight contract, pursuant to laws, blah, blah, blah. Compensation. Juicy bits when it comes to Khabib. So for this particular contract, which again, I believe, you know, had Daryl Horcher, uh, Michael Johnson, Edson Barbosa, all that fun stuff, right? The compensation that Habib Nurmagomedov made um, is listed as below. So subject in all events to section 10.1D, which is, you know, fighter's purse. And if, if and only if fighter is declared the winner of a bout by the athletic commission, a win bonus each in the amount as set forth below so a fighter's purse for the first bout shall be twenty one thousand dollars less all permissible or required 
deductions. So we saw John MacDessie's contract, right? And we saw that like, you know, takes out health, takes out like your medical test, takes out like some of your transportation stuff. Like it, it's just, you lose that plus your tax. So Khabib for these fights is making 21,000 for his first fight on this contract minus those deductions. And then if, and only if fighters declare the winner, they get another 21,000. Here's where it gets interesting to me. If and only if fighters declare the winner of the first bout by an applicable athletic commission, fighters' purse for the second bout shall be deemed twenty-four thousand. Um, with the same, then less all applicable expenses. If and only if a fighter is declared the winner of the first bout and the second bout, the win bonus for the second bout shall be twenty-four thousand. Less all permissible. Blah, blah, blah. Then you go on to the which would be the third fight. If and only if fighter is declared the winner of the first bout and the second bout. By the applicable mission, the fighter's purse for the third bout will be 27000 And same, again, uh, in terms of win bonus, if the fighter is not declared the winner of the first bout and the second bout, there is no acceleration to actually bump this up. Fighter's purse and win bonus for the third bout should be the same as set forth in subsection A, which is that 21000 And then same with the fourth. If the fighter is declared the winner of the first, second, third bout, then it's up to 30. So this is essentially a rising pay scale, right? and what they call acceleration here. This was particularly interesting because if you look at some of the testimony of Lorenzo Fatida, he's asked at one point about a fighter pay matrix and he kind of goes back and forth and the you know lawyer who's doing the deposition kind of grills him a bit in terms of saying like, hey, here are these texts Dana sent you about Gilbert Melendez um, you know, saying that, you know, you, what you did was masterful in terms of like taking their oxygen and taking their pay. And he's asked like, do you know of a fighter pay metric tricks? And he's like, no, not explicitly. And he basically is like, okay, here's an exhibit that is essentially you alluding to and saying there is a fighter pay matrix. And he said, well, no, not exactly. And he kind of, again, based on, we, we weren't there to see his verbal or, you know, body reactions, but based on what is in the record, of that deposition certainly seems like the lawyers kind of trying to get him in a gotcha. Right. And doesn't look like he deflects it entirely. There's a lot of that in some of these depositions we're going to go through. Um, haven't gone through fully Lawrence Epstein's deposition, but I know there's some tidbits in there, but with the Fertitta one, Lorenzo Fertitta, I mean, he often deflects saying like, well, you can't look at pay this way with fighters and all this stuff. And what we knew we saw sports entertainment as our competitor, all that stuff. But the fight pay matrix is alluded to in this section of a contract. Um, it's not explicit as a matrix per se, but this is what we learned based on the previous release of documents from Joe Silva's testimony, right? Like this is kind of a standard thing. And not only is it like accelerate by, in this case, Khabib's case, three grand on the show and win each bout, but it only happens if you win all of them. So if you win the first two and then you lose the third and then you fight the fourth, that means that you're getting 21,000, then 24,000. Then you're getting 27,000 for the show. And then let's say you lost, you don't get your win bonus. That means for the fourth, you go back to 21,000. The way this is worded, you have to win all of your fights in order to get that bonus. Doesn't matter what order of the four, you could lose your first one, win your next three. Doesn't matter. You're only getting 21,000 for show and win. That's important. 
because I feel like that structure is still in place and kind of why you see with certain fighters, why they've accelerated in some ways and, you know, within weight class ranges, which Fertitta also admits within certain weight classes, there are fighter pay ranges. Some weight classes are paid more than others. Heavyweight, for example, as we know, is, is paid more. I don't know exactly why there's some logic there, but the way the structure is set up, there are these ranges and they're pretty much predetermined by stuff like this. It is not a like per fighter basis of, oh, we like you a little bit more. We're going to give you two grand extra. We've seen texts and emails and we've talked about this about a year or so more now due to the delay on a lot of this case. Uh, but we've talked about this where, you know, managers and agents have talked to Joe Silva and sent emails and to Dana and Hunter and really nothing changed much. They asked for a little bit here or there, but very rarely did they ever get any movement on anything. It was more about signing more agreements or trying to get more promotional opportunities, not increasing the pay because the pay is set out like this. I would not be shocked if pretty much all fighter contracts are still looking very much like this in a lot of ways, right? Uh, every contract could still be different. Obviously, a lot of changes have happened since this contract, but this gives you an idea of what was the basic engine of fighter pay as the UFC was ramping up to become this, you know, supercharged powerhouse and be sold for four billion and then make the amount of revenue they're making now. This is part of keeping fighter compensation down. There is a bit of a structure to it. It's not just random. So with that in mind, uh Zufa shall pay a fighter's purse and win bonus of Apical within 24 hours. Um, and again, these, you know, just basically saying, okay, we may deduct your whole compensation. We'll pay within 24 hours. Uh, any and all potential fighter purses and if applicable win bonus is capable of being earned shall be negotiated in good faith between the parties during the extension term. Okay. Um, and yeah, basically just says like, Hey, you're going to at least get these. And yes, there are some locker room bonuses and things like that, but they're not nearly as big as we know based on financials, right? At least what's been reported. Um, Talking about what incidentals are, uh, lodging meals, meal allowances, which we'll get to in a sec. But just again on the compensation, last thing there. Mind you, this is when Habib is fighting his way up the rankings, right? He's crushing. Daryl Horcher obviously was a last-minute replacement. But then he's crushing Michael Johnson. He's smothering Edson Barbosa. Bigger names, ranked names, and he's getting paid this much. Important to keep in mind. Um, when they talk about incidentals now in section seven or article seven, rather, uh, in addition to fighters purse, uh, and win bonus as provided for above fighters shall be entitled to the transportation, lodging meals or meal allowances and bout tickets, uh, identified in the bout agreement for each non-championship bout fighter participates in Zufa shall provide a total of one hotel or motel room and two round trip economy airline class tickets for, the fighter and a fighter affiliates, which a fighter affiliate shall include, but not limit to his manager, agent, trainer, seconds, sparring partners, other por persons associated with the fighter who are connected with the bouts. So that pretty much is saying like, hey, not your drinking buddy, but um, or superstar friend or who have you. It's like somebody that's going to help you out, probably your corner man. Uh, so you only get included once. That means, you know, if you're trying to bring your whole corner over your, of, of, you know, three people in your corner, you're paying for two for each championship bout. Uh, you get two hotel rooms, three round trip economy class tickets. You may still have to pay for one economy ticket. Um, and uh, yeah, it's it's that's it. 
that's all you get for being champ is an extra hotel room, an extra plane ticket. Wild. Um, for all bouts here under fighter shall arrive and check in the lodging provided by Zufa on the date specified in the battle agreement, which will be any time up to eight days prior. So you can check in quite a bit prior, right? Which makes sense, especially if you're international travel, um, check out depart whenever they tell you to, um, Fighter and affiliates shall be each provided with either $50 cash per diem for meals or meal voucher for three meals a day. So basically 50 bucks a day for meals or three meals a day. Um, and food allowances shall be non-cumulative from day to day. So you can't like save up all your money and then, you know, spend 150 or $200 on lavish food. Uh, lodging will be provided. Uh, fighter shall also be provided with four tickets to each bout here under. A selection of location which will be determined by Zufa. If fighter's bout is a main event, fighter shall receive tickets for seats located within 10 rows of the octagon. So basically, if you're in a main event, your family and friend tickets are going to be closer to the actual octagon. Um, if you're not, well, you get four tickets, but wherever you Zufa decides. I remember one time, uh, I went to Romero Whitaker two in Chicago and actually sat near Anthony Smith's family. Um, and they were in the middle upper rows. So, I mean, it was, it was pretty far out there. Uh, it wasn't, weren't bad seats by any means. It was, it was pretty solid seats, but I mean, it's not like, oh, first row or, or still a premium row for all events, right? Depends. Um. But yeah, they were they were up in the it's either the first, second row of the third deck or middle of the second row deck, which is good seats. But still, it's just kind of a I'm sure dependent on the specific event. Um, and then no other benefits, charges, expenses, or other incidentals of any kind uh, shall be provided by Zufa to the fighter so or anyone associated with the fighter. So anything else, cell phone bills, uh, gifts, entertainment, it, yeah. It says beverages that probably means alcohol. You're out of luck. Got to pay for it yourself. Um, fighter conduct. That this is when the UFC fighter conduct policy was in place. It's still technically there, but um, you know, basically, a lot of this talks to any situation. A fighter shall conduct himself in accordance with commonly accepted standards of decency, social conventions, morals. Fighters shall not commit any act or become involved in any situation or occurrence or make any statement which will reflect negatively upon or bring disrepute, contempt, scandal, ridicule, or disdain to the fighter, the identity of the fighter, any fighter's affiliates, Zufa, or any of its officers, manager, employee, gentlemen. Fighter conduct shall not be such as to shock, insult, or offend the public or any organized group therein or reflect unfavorably on any current or proposed arena site hotel. So funniest thing about this is essentially it's a one-sided uh, agreement that says like, Hey, if you make any bad comments about the UFC, about, you know, sponsors, if you offend a particular organized group, uh, you know, all this stuff, um, you know, this could be violating the code of conduct, which could be a breaching contract, but the UFC will determine that. So obviously we've seen some pretty ridiculous stuff in the octagon, um, especially as of late. It's at the UFC's discretion, right? This was around, I think was around or, or near around the Matt Mitrione scenario, right? Uh, where they kind of introduced this fighter conduct. Well, I don't know how much of that is still technically alive. It's probably still in contracts, but I doubt it's, it's paid out paid that much attention uh and yeah then we get into you know controlled substances um 
with uh, advertising material needs to be go through Zufa, things of that nature, and then termination and remedies. So this will be the last section we cover on Habib's contract. So in this particular contract, and I think, again, this language is probably used in most areas. Um, I, I think this is something that is probably still very much alive in in spirit, at least. And during Khabib's contract, it was Zufa shall have the right but not obligation upon notice to fighter to accelerate the term and thereby terminate Zufa's promotional and other obligations here under and under any bout agreement then in effect and to terminate fighter's participation in any bout with acceleration effective as the date of notice and to withdraw recognition from fighter of any championship title status or belt. So basically it says like, Hey, these are the ways we can, uh, you know, essentially serve notice. The fighters say you're gone. Uh, one, if a fighter fails for any reason whatsoever to engage in the minimum number of bouts offered by Zufa. Um, so if you just keep rejecting fights, they could cut you uh, fighter, any fighters affiliates material, material, materially breach, violate, or in default of any provision of this agreement or any other agreement hereafter entered into between fighter and Zufa. That's a big one because that essentially says, especially with some of this language that's in there, right? Code of conduct being one code of conduct. Technically you're not supposed to just besmirch Zufa, it's officers, blah, blah, blah. So technically if you speak bad about the UFC, they can cut you right then and there. They can decide right and say, Hey, we're done with you. Like goodbye. Um, technically if you don't show up to the press conferences, you can get cut, uh, right? Anything, any violation of this and they can cut you. And again, because a lot of this is a one-sided ish contract, I'm, I'm not even, I'm going to take away the ish. It's a one-sided type contract and you would have to challenge it in court or through an arbitrator. It's going to be very expensive for you to challenge any of it, right? It's, it's not a scenario where you can terminate or you can sue for whatever. Like that's not the case. Um, especially with a lot of language in this. Um, so any, any material breach. So, and that's also fighter affiliate. So if your your manager, your agent, your coach, any of them talk bad, you're in trouble. It's not a surprise that the number of managers and agents who are very buddy, buddy with the UFC are the ones with a lot of fighters, right? This only reinforces that through the contract, which is great from the UFC from a contract perspective um, and business perspective. See any of the representations or warranties of fighter contained herein were false when made or are no longer true and correct. So again, warranties are saying like, yes, I am upholding fighter contract. Yes, I am good on my medicals. But basically, if you lie to them or it's a key piece of information where you know if it changes, it's going to be a problem, they can cut you. Uh, D fighter is not declared the winner of any mixed martial arts bout, whether promoted by Zufa or not by the athletic commission or official authority having dis jurisdiction over the bout so if you happen to go to an underground fight club in saudi arabia you get permission to go ahead and fight right if you're khabib you're on your ride and you're like you know what i'm gonna go to dagestan i'm gonna go fight in kadyrov's personal birthday party uh, it's not televised whatever he loses the bout for whatever reason the ufc could cut think about that if if you and again this was during a time when you you technically had some cross promotional things. Not, I mean, not really for this type of contract, right? But it's probably older language from when you had fighters kind of do the occasional one-off other event while still under contract with the UFC. Um, if you lose in those bouts, you're gone. 
if the UFC wants you to be gone. Right? That's crazy. If you if you are having an exhibition, technically if you're having an exhibition with a friend and it's judged by just a bunch of you know your buddies or official authority having jurisdiction, it could that could technically mean a lot. If that happens and you lose, they could cut you. That's crazy. But again, great for the UFC. And probably there in case you did have like a boxing match or something crazy and then you know, they co-promoted or something happened and your your star power dwindled and they didn't want to pay you whatever purse they were paying you. Right? Um the section fighters license to participate in bouts is suspended or revoked. So, you know, if an athletic commission says, hey, we're gonna spend you, do whatever, they can cut you. Fighters unable to obtain the necessary documentation, including any work visas, to lawfully permit fighter or fighters affiliates to participate in any bout. So we've seen this a couple times, right? Where they've had, oh, fighters been signed or some so and so is on the way, but then couldn't get a visa and it's happened enough, they've been cut or they've been cut and then re-signed once the visa is worked out. Um fighter is charged with a misdemeanor other than a minor traffic offense or a felony. So felony makes sense, but a misdemeanor. I mean, that's also, again, you shouldn't be breaking the law, obviously, but I, I mean, there are some very, very small misdemeanors that can happen. I'm trying to think of what, uh, what would be a, you know, um, trespassing, right? That's, that's one, uh, uh, technically with Derek Lewis going 130 and a 35 or whatever, they could cut him for that. Cannabis is technically one. Um, I, I mean, it's just like stuff driving with suspended license. I mean, that probably is a minor, um, offense, but I mean like trespassing that that's probably, one where it's like, hey, if you really pissed someone off and you were trespassing or something happened, uh, vandalism. So if you, you know, not not to say you should be doing any of this, but with the with what we've seen fighters do in the past, they can be cut for a lot of reasons. That's that's what I'll leave it at. They they often aren't, but the UFC has that ability to. Um, Fighters should commit any act which would permit any arena event site or television broadcaster, distributor, or exhibitor to cancel its contract with Zufa. Makes sense. And then acceleration shall be without further liability or obligation from Zufa to fighter, except with the payment of any fighter's purse or win bouts, if applicable, or any other bouts, um, amounts due for bouts that have been completed prior to acceleration. So, again, um, you know, stuff like Leslie Smith opponent missing weight so she refused that fight and then they paid her about it's like okay and then they terminated yeah they can do that um again ancillary rights are special unique uh so basically you know this is an injunction clause where eh, it's basic contract language for the ancillary rights to say that like they could do an injunction if you were Jorge Masvidal and you were about to start your bare knuckle MMA fighting game and Masvidal's over the cover, they could technically file an injunction to prevent you from doing that as well as, you know, all the monetary damages and being sued or whatever. Uh, 
interesting thing here. If fighter believes in good faith that Zufa has materially breached any material provision of this agreement or has unreasonably failed or refused to perform its obligations here under fighter shall provide Zufa with a written notice of such alleged breach and shall provide Zufa with at least 10 business days to cure the breach. Zufa fails to cure the alleged material breach within 10 business days of receipt of fighters written notice. Then and only then may fighter seek to terminate this agreement and seek redress for any outstanding compensation owed fighter here under. Fighter expressly understands and agrees that his sole remedy for any alleged breach by Zufa shall not shall be to seek payment for any remaining compensation due to fighter under Article 6, um, exclusive of any potential applicable wing bonuses, and in no event shall fighter be entitled to any consequential incidental or punitive damages of any sort. So that's essentially saying if you feel that the UFC has breached something, you can send them in writing something that says like, hey, you need to fix this, and they have 10 business days to fix it. If they do not, you can then seek to terminate the agreement, but you can only get your compensation of your show money, basically. You can't, you know, sue for wrongful blah, blah, blah. I very much wonder if this has ever been used. I wonder if anyone has sent a letter to the UFC and it's just gotten lost. I know of bigger companies where that's happened, where they've been like, hey, like you're you're in material breach of this. You have 10 days. And then for whatever reason, it got lost and they didn't get it. And I was like, well, you had a receipt where you uh, received this and you didn't fix it. So we're now terminating the agreement. Th that technically works. Doubt it's happened, but it's it's there. Um, also talks about insurance that provide health and accidental death insurance as required by Apical Medic Commission. Um, also basically says that Accordingly, except for the insurance benefits for being provided by Zufa as described in this article, fighter for himself, his heirs, assignees, executors, and administrators agrees to be solely liable for and will bear the full and complete cost of any medical treatment or disability and any all, other all costs associated with it. Um, and Zufa shall have the right at its selection to obtain Zufa's cost and expense life or other insurance upon fighter, including but not limited to insurance against the failure of fighter to appear and participate in any bout or insurance to cover injuries and that this coverage is for the benefit of Zufa. Uh, so technically a fighter could have life insurance on them from Zufa. And then if they die in the cage, Zufa or UFC ends up getting paid, which is wild. Um, all right. Uh, let's see here. Warranties are basically saying that, you know, fighter is entering into this agreement from his own free will, all of that. Um, uh, right to match in the matching period. So this is a big one and one that's come up quite a bit is during the one year period after conclusion of the term for any reason whatsoever, title of the matching period, Zufa shall have the option to match financial terms and conditions of any offer made to the fighter for another bout as defined in this agreement. Fighter shall not accept any offer or enter into any contract or agreement with any promotional entity during this year or this matching period. Prior to the acceptance of any offer made, and conditions of the offer, including to, but not limited to, the identity of the promotional entity making the offer. Such notice shall constitute, oh, sorry, fighter shall first deliver to Zufa or UFC a written notice of material financial terms and conditions of the offer that include the promotional identity. So that's a saying like, hey, if you get an offer in this period, you have to submit it to us and say like, hey, Bellator is offering me this much money and these conditions. And then Zufa shall have 15 business days following the receipt of that to accept the financial terms of the fighter offer. If Zufa does not accept, fighter can go ahead and take that offer. If they do, then they're essentially, the, and they match the terms of the offer, the fighter has then contracted and 
basically enters into a contract with UFC. So this is highlighted by a, a tweet that Stephen Morocco had, right, with I think Machida, where UFC offered him like a fair amount of money, I think six hundred fifty grand or something. Uh, Bellator came back with seven hundred fifty to win or show two hundred fifty k to win. UFC matched that. Bellator then came back with a million dollar offer. UFC matched that, and Leoto said he would prefer to go with Bellator, so they like let it go. But if UFC wanted to, they could say, no, we're going to go ahead and we're, we're going to enact this and you are under this contract. And there was no, there'd be nothing Leoto could have done about it in 2018. So first of all, it's crazy. Leoto Machida is making a million dollars per fight at Bellator. That's wild. But secondly, um, especially in 2018, but secondly, UFC could have pulled the trigger and forced Leoto to fight for the UFC instead. That's a huge part of how they've formed or the argument rather that they formed the monospony power. Um, and it's a huge reason why, again, these contracts are great for business from the UFC fight and standpoint. Um, and that's pretty much the, the nuts and bolts of the contract. So again, specifics, and I know that was a lot, but specifics there, especially around Khabib and everything else. I mean, that's a, a standard contract and he was not making that much money. Right. So it's really, this is how it works. This, this is a one-sided contract. It's very common. Uh, it's, I'm sure it's changed now a little bit, but this is the type of things we're dealing with. That's that boilerplate contract that most fighters were probably under. And he was only making 21 up to 24. He obviously got to the 30 grand show and win purse, but that's, that's what we're dealing with. Let me know your thoughts on this. I know that took up a lot of time, but let me know your thoughts on this. Um, cause obviously that's important that we go through that contract. All right. Next thing we're going to talk about here is a presentation that was titled the UFC company overview. That was also an unsealed doc in the UFC antitrust lawsuit case. Um, going to go quickly through this and I've, I've sent a couple of screenshots out there on Twitter already of things I found interesting, but you know, this starts with saying it has universal appeal. Uh, you know, the brand of the UFC is, is mostly younger skewing. It talks about the ability to create superstars. So this is at a time when Ronda Rousey is still very prevalent and it shows Ronda and, and the four steps, at least in these presentation are identify up and coming talent and see talent, in new markets, develop fighters, early careers and provide additional training to increase marketability, continue to promote fighters through on the ground at activation, public relations, and then cross promotion brand management by connecting superstars to marquee media outlets. And it shows Rousey going from 2008 to present being a celebrity. Obviously her celebrity has fallen off a little bit, but kind of gives that whole spiel. It talks about being the largest pay-per-view provider, um, fight pass laying the foundation of the future. So one thing that's immediately jumps out about this presentation, right? Is, it talks a lot about how Fight Pass is going to grow, how it's going to be their streaming service, and how when you get into the pay-per-view revenue split slides, it helps save costs for the UFC side because they don't have to split it with another third party. If you basically go through Fight Pass in 2015, right, which was definitely a thing, and you buy a pay-per-view through them, that saves them money and it, it gives them more revenue. Um, it talks about the continued growth in ratings on Fox, which is when this deal was currently, um, you know, this presentation was made. They were currently with Fox uh, 
up until I believe it's 2018. Um, but yeah, I mean, you're looking at basically a couple of slides here talking about ratings growth and pay-per-view prelims ratings growth. Um, talked about contract length, media rights landscape, where UFC at this time is average. Uh, the the average per year right is 116 million, which is a little bit behind and undervalued in their opinion compared to when they're obviously talking about NFL, NBA, which they're of course going to talk about there. But I mean, it, it shows that they were thinking about the media rights landscapes quite a bit and we'll get to some of their projections. They were really thinking about a huge boost, which they mostly got to the ESPN deal. Um, they talk about maximizing the value of content packages through multiple packages, uh, similar to what the NFL does, right? Where it's packaging its contact to maximize value and doesn't bear any game production costs. That's a huge part of this overview as well. It talks a lot about how the UFC is in, unique in that they're doing all the production. They're not having Fox or FS1 or whoever their media partner be having to bear any of the production costs so that can help them up the rights. And when they talk about cost drivers and reducing costs, a lot of that will come down to production costs, which is one of their biggest, it's their second biggest cost driver next to athlete compensation. So when we talk about the TKO merger, right, and having some synergies there with WWE's own production staff and things of that nature, it makes sense. You could cut some of those jobs and some of those duties by combining some things and cutting your production costs, which I still believe, in though, even though this is 2015, is still one of the main drivers of cost for the UFC. So talks a lot about that. Um, I posted this already on Twitter, but it also talks about a roadmap for developing new markets where you enter a market through a broadly distributed television partner. So, you know, that's going to a local um, affiliate or, you know, in the case study they have is listed in Brazil where content began airing on the Combate channel, a subscription network owned by Globosat, and then they host an event. Uh, so you monitor engagement through television first, then you monitor engagement where you track engagement through metrics such as TV viewership, social media following. And then as the interest builds in the fan becomes more vocal uh, during this time, UFC launches on the ground activations such as fighter tours, viewing parties, fan experiences. Um, also, you know, just basically starts to get the buzz going to get more people into the sport. Um, you invest in developing talent from the region is the third step. So locally, Relevant talent plays a large factor in the speed of a market development. So to this end, the UFC invests in talents through two primary vehicles, fighter development programs and bespoke content, such as international versions of the ultimate fighter and road to UFC. So again, that's the M one partner. They did um, partnership. They did the road to UFC. We see now, right where they do those mini tournaments, the ultimate fighter, Brazil, the UK, all the, all that stuff is to help build interest and develop talent that then they can put on regular shows so that you get another, you know, Conor McGregor, Darren Till, Patty Pimblett, people who gets a particular international market invested in the sport. And then eventually you host a UFC event in the region, timed around renewal of TV rights. This is huge. And we see this to this day, right? All the O2 events, the Patty Pimblett, Tom Aspinall events and, and, those big events they did in the UK right before the UK rights deal was renegotiated. Huge, huge piece of the puzzle and something they're thinking about all the time. So, you know, you host a live event, ensures mass media coverage and exemplifies the popularity uh, popularity of the UFC brand 
and then strategy has successfully resulted in meaningful rights value increases. Yes, that's we've seen that in and in this case, they talk about it. Uh, oh, sorry, value rights increases in Sweden, Korea, and the Philippines in 2015. So they did that, which they did have a UFC Sweden, Korea, and Philippines events, and they all increased their media rights. So that's a huge portion of this strategy they still implement today. Production capabilities, again, they talk about strategic focus on differentiating UFC events through high production value, um, that they're the only major sports organization to do a full in-house service. This ties back to Apex events. Everybody complains about them, but again, it helps cut down on costs. You don't have to pay logistics. You don't have to pay additional venue and production value. It's all in-house and easier to do from employees that don't have to travel, that you don't have to pay their for DMs, um, their expenses, all that fun stuff. Don't have to bring in extra people, bring in extra partners or you know venue partners, right? If you're doing an event in an arena, chances are the arena has certain vendors and certain things that need a certain kickback, a whole bunch of stuff. Apex solves a lot of those problems, especially for the smaller fight nights. So this talks a lot about the Zufa Library and UFC fight pass, which is still a thing, but it's obviously here. They're looking at it as the future. They don't have the ESPN deal and the ESPN plus lined up yet. Um, it's probably not even that much in the works or maybe it's been discussed, but at this point, right, they're talking about UFC fight pass being that streaming service. And it just further solidifies that had ESPN plus not come around and that deal not been struck, they would have gone more towards the route of having their own streaming service using, you know, Endeavor's capabilities to cross sell and things of that nature. Um, event scheduling operations too. They have complete control and flexibility over the event calendar. Uh, they target at this point, 40 to 45 events annually. That's obviously more now, um, but they confirms availability in multiple cities for almost every date to ensure location flexibility. So that's good to know, right? So when it's part of what we see on December 2nd, I think, They've been talking about Minnesota. That had been the rumor, but it ends up being Austin. I know Shanghai has just been finalized for December 9th, but they've been talking about moving that to the state side if they couldn't get it done. So they book multiple venue availability and kind of hold that so they're okay, right? Um, matchmaking and venue selection work in tandem. So, for example, if the UFC knows that it has an upcoming event schedule in a particular country or city, they will try to secure a main event featuring that fighter, or if they want to highlight a fighter, they'll try and secure that fight in a particular region makes sense. Uh, talks about New York legalization, which was big at this time. Uh, talks about notable fighters in weight class and athlete development, talking about, you know, at this point, building the um, performance center, uh, actively managing its roster, retain talent, fighter development programs, which, you know, we've seen in other countries quite a bit now. Um, Athletes, you know, health that goes into that. And then it has a whole slide at this point on UFC China. This is big because this is where things have obviously shifted to. This is a huge reason why Wei Li got that massive push and has been given as many opportunities as possible to become champ and stay champ. Um, you know, you looking at this, they produced the Ultimate Fighter China uh, landmark reality show in 2014 recently signed a five-year distribution partnership with PPTV over the long run UFC views China as a hundred million dollar plus annual revenue opportunity. Um, UFC's priorities to host its first ever event in mainland China, uh, 
planning underway for Shanghai in 2017. That did happen. Uh, opening a Shanghai office, um, driving brand awareness through all that stuff. It has multiple slides on just China. That shows you what a big deal it is, right? Uh, or actually just one particular slide, but mo- talks about China and the international slides quite a bit. It's a big deal. Um, and it talks about some of its high impact synergy opportunities with sponsorship sales, right? So UFC sells the majority of its sponsorship in house at this point. And then IMG is one of the largest sponsorship sales capabilities in global sports and can help the UFC increase sponsorship level to, to levels similar to other sports. We've seen that happen in real time now, right? We continue to see these new sponsorships, Bud Light, huge one. Um, that just keeps happening, selling octagon space, all that stuff. That's a huge thing. UFC consumers product businesses in its early stages, um, they expected at this point to build that out more. That didn't really happen as much brand expansion and marketing. That's been huge and been building, which was part of their key synergies they were looking for. And then cost synergies was a big part of this, you know, endeavor buying them. UFC has $150 million at this time of overhead costs. Uh, we believe there are significant overlap functions at WME slash IMG, and we expect a fairly meaningful savings potential. So again, you've got WME, IMG doing a lot of the sponsorships and sales, right? On location is a huge one before they had like VIP experience or whatever. So you've got all this going on and they're basically saying like, hey, here's all the ways that we can kind of save money and change things. Same thing they're doing with TKO now, right? Um, Obviously you had a lot of people let go from WWE side, but it's the same type of deal. It's let's combine, let's find out where, you know, WWE, you're really good at this. UFC, you're really good at this. Let's put them together. And where we both have weaknesses, we'll chop it off where WWE is good at something. UFC is not great. We're going to use WWE's capabilities, vice versa. Same thing happened back when Endeavor bought the UFC, right? Same exact scenario where, okay, UFC sponsorship. We do a lot of in-house stuff. We don't have a great, you know, sponsorship team or, or reach. IMG WME has a huge reach and has, you know, incredible sponsorship sales. We'll get it together. And it worked, right? Obviously, sponsorship's been huge. Um, Then they talk about revenue and financial drivers in general. Revenue projections here are extremely interesting. I already noted this Twitter because 2015, they were expecting overall revenue in 2019 to jump to 1.1 billion. They got there but they got there later, right? I believe it was 2021. Um, 2019, you know, I already mentioned they expected a particular revenue in EBITDA, which based on this particular presentation that they missed, right? They expected revenue of 1.176 and then EBITDA being, I forget the exact number, but I mean, something much higher than what was actually realized. Um, And that's not COVID's fault. COVID obviously affects 2020, but 2019, it just didn't particularly happen that way. A huge part of that is they expected a big growth in pay-per-views. And I think with increasing pay-per-view prices and then the switch to ESPN instead of their own UFC fight pass, uh, that's obviously led to some changes. And these projections are never spot on, right? Like, let me, no one is an, an oracle at these things these are projections for a reason. And these are four or five years out. So a lot can change. They still are making a ridiculous amount of money. They're in really good shape. It's just, this shows you the optimism that was held in 2015, right? Um, Content revenue was a huge part of their drivers, right? Um, 
they expected to get better deals on the traditional split of pay-per-view. So they thought they'd get more and more of the actual traditional pay-per-view buy that obviously went out the window when ESPN plus became the exclusive provider. Um, but they talk about basically UFC owns all of its content, including all prior fights, TV programs, and newly produced content that allows flexibility and control of production ensures broadcast quality and consistency. Um, UFC competes with other major sports by offering a more personal experience, building excitement for every event by drawing them into the athletes' lives and rivalries. Yeah, that's yeah, that's what it is. And then it talks about historical pay-per-view buys and how that's a huge part of this and that UFC 196 generated 1.3 million pay-per-view buys. That was the biggest in UFC history. Um, and their projections, again, on these pay-per-view buys are significant. They're expecting pretty large increases from 2015, around 237 million to up to 348 in 2020. Um, and they're also expecting average net revenue per buy. They're expecting to get by 2020, they're expecting to get $34 of every net revenue buy. Obviously that's changed quite a bit. Um, and the numbers here again that they have, and this slide is all kind of cramped into one, but they also have pay-per-view prices going up to about $65, right? We're obviously much higher than that now. Um, but, they just expected continual growth of their pay-per-view revenue, especially through UFC.TV. They say specifically that UFC's premium pay-per-view product is available for digital purpose on UFC.TV and UFC applications across a wide range of devices, providing several benefits to the UFC, drives additional revenue as UFC retains a greater proportion of each buy, around 85% of UFC point TV. Um, UFC.TV creates leverage when negotiating pay-per-view distribution agreements, alternative distribution point for UFC global audience that does not have access to the traditional like cable providers and ability to capture purchases information in a CRM database. So I know a lot about CRM. Uh, it's part of my regular work, but essentially it's saying, hey, if you buy a UFC pay-per-view through UFC.TV, we're going to take your name, your information, all that, put you in a database, and then we're going to track your marketing capabilities. We're going to give you drip campaigns where we're going to send out emails about so-and-so, all that fun stuff. So that helps them build a giant database of customers that, that then they can analyze the data for to kind of help predict trends. Um, commercial pay-per-view, they also expect it to be a bigger thing. Uh, key accounts listed here are Hooters and Buffalo Wild Wings. Obviously, um, those have dropped off a bit, right? They don't have them as much. They're still in B-dubs quite a place, but I don't know about Hooters as much. Hooters has, has struggled a bit. Um, they also, at this point, were currently testing in TGI Fridays and Applebee's. Um, currently testing in 20 locations of TGI Fridays, uh, but that obviously didn't seem to go anywhere. Um, and again, they were hoping that shift to commercial pay-per-view, so when you go to a bar restaurant to digital, would help drive the margin through UFC.TV. That obviously changed again when ESPN Plus happened. Not sure exactly how, but that makes a huge difference. Then it talks a lot about UFC Fight Pass, which again, kind of hard to say where that's landed. It's definitely not as big as they expected given the ESPN Plus deal and all the, the arrangements made there. Uh, then it talks about media rights and expected a huge jump in media rights up to $464 million uh, dollars by 2020. Um, and talks about the increase in media rights and they were pretty much spot on there where they got a giant increase in those rights, right? Like, um, that has helped them quite a bit. Um, and international media rights, again, they talk about at this point, Brazil is their most significant market, but then the opportunity to replicate the sex of 
success of Brazil across key markets through continued investment is huge. Uh, specifically, they mentioned China, Sweden, all those fun places. Uh, and key markets that are underutilized at this point are Canada, France, Germany, uh, UK, Netherlands. Uh, those are all areas, right, that they then moved into, right? UK and, and France being the most recent ones. But I would imagine Germany's up there too. I imagine Germany might be the next place they kind of go to. Russia, right? Then um, it talks about live event revenue, hoping for bigger gates. Again, this is talking about MSG, trying to get gates similar to uh, Las Vegas for the marquee events. They obviously exceeded those expectations. Ticket sales, prices of tickets have gone up exponentially there, so they know. Then they talk about sponsorships being a huge portion of it, which, as we've seen, that's been a huge key strategy they've utilized recently, the UFC, in terms of trying to get these new sponsorships, get deals done. Talk about 15 available categories, uh, automobile manufacturers, automobile aftermarket manufacturers, tires, which they have, Toyo tires, beer, which we know um, is Bud Light, energy drinks, soft drinks, spirits, uh, consumer electronics, include cell phones, packaged goods, food, non-food, entertainment, video games, video game platforms, television, financial services, insurance, telecommunications, uh, burger sandwiches, pizza, all that stuff are categories they're trying to, at this point, get exclusive partners for. Um, they additionally believe, they list here, growth will be driven by rate card increases and sell-through rate market improvement, particularly in international um, markets. And significant opportunity remains to grow revenue through securing partners in the remaining open categories. And there's, at this juncture, there's about 10 in this particular presentation. Uh, but basically saying like, hey, we need to get more sponsors, which they did. Consumer products was a big thing too, where they expected a lot of consumer product growth with the fight kit partnership with Reebok, uh, video game with EA Sports, e-commerce offerings, the UFC store. That's probably fell a little bit short. Uh, additional revenue from UFC's joint venture in UFC gym is listed, which obviously the UFC gym has kind of fallen off. But a key thing they bring up, and I think will be a big synergy they look to get from the WWE merger is there's a case study of UFC versus WWE consumer products in this, where it talks about 2015 consumer products revenue is 3.1% of total revenue for UFC, but 14.9% for WWE. And obviously with WWE, you've got the title belts, you've got a lot t-shirts and all those types of merchandise movers. That's not as prevalent in the UFC. Would not be surprised if they try and take some of those processes and strategies. WWE is used and known about and now apply them to the UFC to drive consumer products because that is a huge portion of revenue that they projected in the future that didn't really get realized at least as far as we can tell um cost of sales is athlete compensation and production marketing's up there too and then there's kind of other cost of sales but really the big ones are athlete cost of sales and production and production they expect to remain flat in this presentation, athlete cost drivers, they expect to grow quite a bit, which obviously did happen, right? Um, but it's also been reduced. They've they've really done a good job keeping fighter costs down and getting under that 20%. Um, operating expensive drivers too, you know, compensation, things of that nature. Uh, consulting airplanes are listed at this point because that's always fun, right? Private planes, but and goes on to keep talking about EBITDA cash, uh, EBITDA cash flow conversion. I'm sure Nash and a um, couple others will do big dives into this historical balance sheet stuff, which is interesting. 
that pretty much talks about the rest of the oversight, right? And, and the overview. And it's just interesting because we see that they've taken a lot of those strategies and they've implemented them. And some haven't worked out, right? Consumer products, the UFC gym, uh, you know, some of the UFC fight pass that obviously changed, but a lot of them have the international building markets in the UK, in France, we're seeing that right now, China has been massive sponsorship has been a huge deal. So for the most part, they're on track in that regard. Financials aren't quite there compared to their projections, but they're still making money hand over fist. It's, it's a win. If you're 2015, Ari and crew looking and Dana and crew looking at this saying, Hey, here's where we are in 2020. You're probably happy. 2023 rather you're, you're probably happy with what you projected and where you are probably want more of course but they always do um that wraps up the company overview and financial docs presentation let me know if you have any questions on this happy to dive further into it but yeah tons to unpack with this one all right so speaking of sponsorships we're going to briefly go through bud light and ufc inking a six-year 100 million plus deal starting in 2024 according to ufc CEO Dana White, in a quote by ESPN, Anheuser-Busch and Bud Light were UFC's original beer sponsors more than 15 years ago. Proud to announce we are back in business together. There are many reasons why I chose to go with Anheuser-Busch and Bud Light, most importantly because I feel we are very aligned when it comes to our core values. That's a key piece we'll come back to. Uh, sorry, that's me separate. And then, and what the UFC brand stands for. I'm looking forward to all of the incredible things we will do in the years ahead. So, Again, that key phrase is aligned on the core values. This all started because of a certain spokesperson that Bud Light chose to use. There was backlash from political core cohort that has driven down Bud Light sales. It's actually affected Bud Light sales. Um, so this is kind of a way to buy back into that group right? Uh, it's no secret that the UFC's audience tends to skew much more conservatively on the political spectrum, spectrum in the US. And this kind of is a way to hopefully buy back goodwill towards them, right? That's why Dana said those words. It's aligned with our core values. I know there was also, you know, oh, conservatives cancel UFC Fight Pass and, and ESPN plus subscriptions over affiliation with Bud Light. It is what it is, but this is all political grandstanding in a circus. And this is basically a company buying its goodwill back, you know, through a growing sport. So it's not like, they, you know, they're paying $100 million just for goodwill. But the idea is it will get them back in the graces of an audience that they lost that they wanted to keep, right? That's all this is. Uh, that's why they paid so much for this much. It's a great opportunity for the UFC. If you're the UFC, of course you jump on this. Um, you do not worry about the brand blowback because, especially with Dana White and them at the helm, right? They'll they'll defend it tooth and nail and be like, it's stupid. Like, why would you do that? Blah, blah, blah. And they're not the ones that hired that particular spokes spokesperson. So it's easy for them to deflect it, especially like that's something the UFC is exceptionally good at. And Dana is very good at is deflecting that type of stuff. So this is an easy deal to take. Take all of Anheuser-Busch's money to get this done and then make a ton of sponsorship revenue, right? Like you, you can't say no to this. As a fiduciary of your company, you have to say yes to this when it's that easy to deflect. Uh, I think any blowback towards the UFC will blow over very quickly. I doubt there'll be a ton. Um, but yeah, this is all political and this is just Anheuser-Busch buying their way in and the UFC being a, again, 
with Dana White speaking at you know the Republican National Convention and for Trump, who is his buddy, makes sense for them to kind of come to the rescue, so to speak here. It, it's open and shut in that regard. It, it's pretty much what it is. Um, yeah, that's about it. So I'm going to quickly touch on this and then probably dive into it just for the sake of time at a later date, maybe next week's podcast. But Endeavor has been talking about going private. Um, couple of thoughts go through your head here, right? Uh, Silver Lake, who you know was a partner with Endeavor when they bought the UFC, um, it owns 71% of Endeavor. And a lot of the discussions that have focused around this have been that there's a feeling that there's a disconnect between uh, Endeavor's share price and what the actual assets and value warrant in a stock share price. Um, this is how the market works nowadays, right? Uh, you had the PFL stuff, you had the Vince McMahon stuff come out and really hurt TKO stock quite a bit. Um, and that of course affected Endeavor stock because Endeavor owns 51% of TKO. And that's where a lot of their underlying assets that are providing them revenue are. But TKO stock has been hammered on this news without any actual financial fallout, right? And I know the there also was the media rights deal for TKO um, on the WWE side for SmackDown for 1.4 times uh, the you know amount. And that seemed to be lower than what Wall Street was expecting, even though that was just one brand. So whenever Raw gets you know, made that deal gets made. It's still a significant increase. And again, monetarily, it's all a win-win. It's just not what they were expecting. And they, especially the PFL stuff, they kind of overreacted, right? You know, PFL getting the Saudi investment hasn't really affected things, especially with UFC now going and doing Saudi stuff. That's, that's, this is a scenario where, especially when your rival firm, CAA gets bought, a majority share gets bought by a, a French billionaire, right? For like 7 billion or whatever it was. And it was 15 times what the assets values were. Ari even says like, what, they got 15 times? Like, we're not asking for that. We're asking for six times. I'll, I'll eat on six times in terms of what Endeavor's assets are. And that's the type of scenario where Ari basically and, and co are probably frustrated that the price share is so low. And Silver Lake is saying, hey, look, there's a good opportunity here for us to go ahead and buy you guys out and just completely buy, you know, take, take you private. We'll give you a ton of money, right? We'll buy out your shares. You'll be happy. And then our thought is the underlying assets here will definitely yield more results in the future. So when wall street stops overreacting, we'll make a ton of money. And it's basically a semi backdoor way to buy more TKO stock, which is what most of Endeavor stock is tied up in anyway, and get that at a, a good price. Now, while things are low, when they shouldn't be low, right? And looking at this from a business perspective, I would say that persp that that take is probably pretty right, right? Like I do not understand the drop in, there's no fundamental reason that TKO and Endeavor should have dropped as much as they have over this past year post-merger and since Endeavor went public. If anything, with the deals they've made, you think that it would be good. Like, I mean, UFC is not going to get two times the media rights. I don't think what they were looking for, but they're still going to get a significant increase from where they are now. SmackDown didn't get 1.5 times media rights or whatever. They still got 1.4. And then there's the, oh, Vince McMahon stuff. Well, Vince McMahon's essentially out of creative and his shares are on the market to be bought. 
I mean, it's it's he's not in charge anymore. It's easy to easy to kind of offload him, despite what promises were made. Oh, he said we we're gonna do yeah, whatever. Already said, oh, Vince is key to creative. Yeah, sure. Uh, no, he's already out of creative, right? That's it's this is business. Of course, that's an easy decision to make. So fundamentally, in looking at the just the overall landscape, yeah, things are tightening in the media rights market. Uh, they're not going to get what they were hoping to, but they're still going to get meaningful increases and they're still going to be having a ridiculous profitability on the UFC side and probably on the WWE side. If anything, those should probably increase due to some synergies they have to reduce costs. So if you are a person like Silver Lake and you have the money as a private equity firm to buy out Endeavor now at a premium so that they can be happy you're thinking, yeah, that probably makes sense. Like you're betting on the future and the future right now fundamentally financially looks pretty great. Yes, the valuations as we talked about have always been overhyped. It's crazy. It's just how Wall Street is nowadays. It's it's so detached from fundamental financials. It's insane. But looking at the potential future and prospects for media rights, for, you know, as long as the antitrust lawsuit doesn't blow up, the UFC is in incredible strength shape i mean if that goes the wrong way for the ufc it's a whole different ball game but otherwise that's in great shape the wwe stuff will almost certainly blow over because it has before and you can just take mcmahon out of the equation and then it does blow over i mean it it's right now it's just news and and negative news without full understanding that's that's driven down the stock price so if you believe the price should have been where it was before it makes sense to pounce on it if you are a private investor and you're looking to take it private right? Take the premium, do that now. That or the technically another scenario is you know how bad the media rights is going to be and you want to kind of insulate yourself because you want to get more private investment. And then this is a way for you to take it private, then say the price is whatever it is because you're a privately owned company and you can kind of value it just on fundamentals, not what stock people are doing. And this is a way to kind of shield yourself from that. But I really feel like it's the other scenario, right? This is a way for someone to buy Endeavor and TKO, more Endeavor and TKO stock at a very, what they believe, a very deep discount for future revenue. I, I got to imagine that's the case. Now, will Ari and crew actually go for this? And, and yeah, we'll see. But I wouldn't be shocked, especially based on his most recent comments. If Silver Lake is willing to pony up quite a bit per share to buy out everyone else, makes sense. It's part of the reason Endeavor spikes or shares of you know, gone back up like 25% on the new talk of doing private. Again, it's just talk about going private. There's no actual, you know, known like this is definitely going to happen, whatever, but that in itself has caused the share price to go way up. They could never bring it up again and Endeavor could stay public. I bet the price still hovers around the 22, 21 range or whatever. As long as there's no rumors of, oh, we're not going private. As long as that doesn't happen, I bet it stays where it is. For years, it could, hypothetically. That's just how the market works right now. So I think that's the strategy behind this. It makes sense to me. I mean, let me know your thoughts on it. But yeah, if Endeavor does go private, I'm not shocked. Especially with TKO being so much of, of their assets. Yeah, I. why not, if you can afford it, get the discount now? It's hard for me. Unless you've got some insider information that says otherwise, I, I can't. I can't understand it. I'm 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 with the idea of looking at that as a strategic alternative at this point. All right, last thing we're going to very quickly run through here cuz I'm short on time. 
Ngannou versus Fury. Crazy Rocky Balboa story, right? But who are the real winners and losers of the fight from a business perspective, right? Purely business perspective. Let's go through the list. We're going to start at the UFC. UFC is by far the biggest loser in this regard, or second biggest, and I'll explain why. It's either second biggest or biggest loser. And that is because you could have co-promoted this fight with how well Nganu did. He almost certainly would earn him more crossover potential. Whatever you would have had to pay Nganu or concessions you would have to make, um, at least some of the concessions, right? Um, financial, you probably aren't going to do the fighter pension and things like that that he was trying to get. But uh, you, you make the financial concessions earlier on you co-promote this fight with Fury and you're making you're making Conor McGregor Mayweather money probably not to that extent but you're making good money with a very good potential rematch now right and so you're going to make between the two fights you're going to make more than you would off of Floyd versus Conor for sure and you could have co-promoted it could have been would have made sense um but alas, they let him walk. So this is this is kind of their worst case scenario in a lot of ways because Ngannou came dangerously close to beating Fury. Uh, it's very easy to score those scorecards that he did beat Fury, and that's huge. And there's I can't imagine a rematch doesn't happen. So yeah, they they lose in that regard. A rare loss from a business perspective for the UFC, but a pretty clear one. Fury, Fury actually wins here. Not the biggest winner, but he does win here, and here's why. His stock is down a little bit now, right? And it's like, oh, this is the whole thing. But the narrative, right? And the media story is like, again, this is a true Rocky Balboa moment. Nobody gave Ngannou a chance. Look at how good he is. It's not disparaging Fury that much as it is piping up Ngannou. Now, was Fury out of shape? Did he not take it seriously? There's a lot of speculation that's true. It, from an you know, outsider perspective, I could say, yeah, I believe I could believe that. But either way, you know, you still walked away with the W. And people don't remember that like Triple G versus Canelo was a draw in part because Adelaide Bird is is insane for that scorecard for Canelo, right? Or the Canelo Floyd score. Like they don't remember that stuff. They remember that it was a draw and then Canelo won the other bouts or that Floyd beat Canelo, right? Like it's, they, they give it enough time, happens in MMA all the time. It's not about how close the fight was. It's about the record. As much as I hate that and I rail against it, that's definitely the truth. So for Fury, this is still a win, and he can come back. He can train harder if he was slacking, and he can hopefully beat Francis, and the rematch is going to do way more financially. And there's no way you don't set up a rematch, right? Like, even the Usyk fight, which has now been pushed back to February, now looks like Usyk has a much more of a chance against Fury based on how he looked against Sagan. So that's probably going to draw more interest for that fight. Any which way you look at it, there's more interest now in what Tyson Fury does next in his next fights than there was before the Ngannou fight. And from a business perspective, financial perspective, that's a win. It's not the way you want to get a win, but it's a win nonetheless. Um, Ngannou, easiest, e- easy, easiest, the, sorry, just been a long day. Easy, I can't even speak, easiest, easiest, the most, <laughs> Ooh, biggest winner, just going to say it that way, biggest winner of the night by far in, in this scenario is Nganu, right? He can now go into boxing, he can certainly get a rematch with Fury, 
I don't know why he would compete in MMA unless he absolutely like had to for contractual reasons, because why he wouldn't go just box now is, is beyond me. He'll make way more money. He can immediately throw himself into contendership with that performance. It's a done deal. It, it's life-changing for him. He now has whatever he wants, right? He can go to PFL. I mean, MMA is more of a risk for him, right? If he ends up going and losing to anti Delijah or, or anyone else, right? For PFL's heavyweights on a fluke or something that hurts his stock. That hurts his ability to rematch with fury or fight Deontay Wilder or what have you. I mean, it, it he is on top of the world right now. And he now has a easily open door, easily open door to walk into boxing and make way more money than he ever did in MMA. So he wins by far, uh, which leads us to PFL. They are the biggest losers of the, the whole scenario until Nganu walks into the cage. And then they're the second biggest winners because once Nganu steps into the smart cage, right? You now have someone who should have more crossover potential. And who's the guy who like pretty much is the people's champ, quote unquote, like beat Tyson Fury or almost beat Tyson Fury. You now have him fighting for your promotion. You have way more casual eyes on it or boxing fans probably getting over to it. Um, this could easily catapult Nganu's crossover star potential. And you've got him under contract for MMA. You are sitting pretty. It's going to be great. But if he never steps into the cage because of that Fury fight. Yes, you had the association that you signed him and he did all this stuff, but it will fade very quickly. And it's very possible that he just stays over in boxing. And he says, you know, I'm not going back to MMA. I'm going to go make a ton more money doing this. Why, why would I ever go back to MMA? Forget that. And he stays in boxing. And if that happens, you're the biggest loser because you've lost one of your main draws as you get the Saudi Arabia money, as you try to compete with the UFC and you take one of their bigger stars, he now won't compete for you. So until he walks into that smart cage, you're the biggest loser because you just lost your potential star to help build your brand around. The minute he does though, fortunes reverse completely. And you're right there with him. We're biggest winner. You're like right on that level of your PFL because you signed him. You got it done. You now have a very big name that will get MMA fans to watch. It's huge. But it all comes down to Will Ngannou actually step in the smart cage. That determines the fate of PFL right now in terms of winner or loser on this. And yeah, that's that's my thoughts on that. Let me know if you agree, disagree, any of that stuff. But that's that's where I stand on the whole scenario. All right, thank you so much for watching. Like, subscribe, bell notification, all that fun stuff. If you're watching on YouTube, if you're listening on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, love you guys as always. Need to wrap this up because I got to go, but... We will be doing more of these in November. Appreciate y'all. And until next time, get money.